0: Welcome to Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. And uh, I'm still in Montenegro, Rick, and you're still in Chattanooga, Tennessee. But man, we've got a great program today.
1: I am, Jimmy, and I'm excited
0: to hear how your
1: week of ministry went. I know you and your whole family and a team of people are over there in Montenegro
0: right now sharing the gospel. Just
1: uh, just maybe give us a brief update on how it went.
0: Yes, uh, we've had a great time here using sports. Uh, I taught tennis all week, and uh, we've had soccer, basketball, volleyball, uh, teaching English, and we use the gospel message to get it out to the people here because we believe that giving them the information pertaining to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and how God sent his only beloved son to die for us so that we might have eternal life by believing in that. And so that's uh, what we've been doing all this week, Rick, and it's been a great time here at what we call Camp Monte in Niksic, Montenegro. So it's been a great time, and the Lord is blessed in our time, and we're looking forward to getting back home. But I would encourage anyone to get out and go to the mission field, spend a summer serving and uh, seeing how another culture lives. It always works in the interest of those that go on a trip. Well, Rick, we've got a great program in store today. I know we've got some very interesting questions and events that we need to cover in the light of God's prophetic word. So let's get started. Ken Timmerman joins us. He's our expert in geopolitical affairs,
1: and he joins us again this week from Sweden. Ken, thank you so much for taking time out of your summer vacation to talk to us.
2: It's a pleasure to be with you, uh, Rick. Thanks for having me on.
1: Well, we've got a variety of items to get to today, and so we'll start our first one. As we look at the changing dynamics in the geopolitical world, you look at the superpowers, U.S., Russia, China... These countries are all kind of jostling for global influence. Can you tell us how that's developing?
2: Well, I think, I think we've gotten to a point now at the – not just the end of the Cold War, but really the, what the U.S. sees as the collapse of the Russian Empire with this uh, invasion of Ukraine, the rise of China – and the arrival of Joe Biden uh, and the abandonment uh, of the American presence in the Middle East, I think, and of U.S. supremacy around the world, which Donald Trump had reasserted, I think we're in a position a little bit like 1947 after World War II, where there, there is going to be a realignment. Uh, there's going to be a realignment among the three world powers. Uh, all three, Russia, China, and the U.S., are looking either for new allies in the case of China and Russia to a certain extent, or for the U.S. to try to reassert ties with old allies. Uh, That's what explains Biden's trip recently to Saudi Arabia, which I think was a resounding failure. Uh, We saw just Thursday that the Saudi crown prince uh, uh, reacted to that U.S. trip by going to France, (laughs) where he's talking to uh, President Macron about a privileged oil deal with France, not with the United States, but with France, because the French have not been putting pressure on him uh, for human rights violations. Uh, The Chinese are active in trying to find new allies, uh, not just in the Middle East, but in Africa. Russia is moving, uh, uh, has pretty much consolidated its hold on Central Asia with the former stands: Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan, uh, Tajikistan, uh, Kyrgyzstan, and the rest of them, uh, Belarus. And now they are moving into Europe and into major, into Western European countries. The U.S. is really the outlier here. The U.S. is the one uh, that is shrinking. And we're shrinking under President Biden's presidency at the same time Uh, that diplomatically he's asserting that we're expanding. So it's an odd situation, Rick, where we can clearly see what Russia and China are doing. And then we see these U.S. counter moves, this attempt to reassert U.S. pressure, which doesn't seem to be working very well.
1: Ken, uh, as we talk about China, and you just mentioned their growing influence, looks like we may have to deal with them sooner rather than later on the issue of Taiwan.
2: Well, nobody really knows what the Chinese timetable on Taiwan is. The U.S. Uh, government analysts are saying they will invade sometime between 2025 and 2035. But nobody knows. Nobody really knows. we picked up uh, intelligence. And, and by the way, um, what we call open source intelligence, uh, satellite photographs, which are now available on the Internet, have picked up a massive Chinese expansion of their naval bases and air bases across from Taiwan, where there's been major construction underway at three of those uh, air bases, uh, all within striking distance, 135 miles, 170 miles, 250 miles, these three bases from Taipei, the capital of Taiwan. This is important stuff. They're bringing uh, more sophisticated, more advanced aircraft to those bases. Uh, They are expanding their navy. They're expanding their landing craft. That Taiwan is taking counter steps, and they are also beefing up their defenses. But the Chinese look at what's going on in Ukraine, and I think they've come to the conclusion uh, if they're going to go against Taiwan, and I think they're pretty determined that they're going to do so, they're going to wait until they have massive, massive forces available so the Taiwanese will mm. essentially collapse within 24 to 48 hours. They do not want a prolonged war with Taiwan, I don't think. I don't think they want to do what the Russians are doing with Ukraine, which is to essentially bomb the country to smithereens before they occupy it. They don't want that. They would like to take Taiwan over intact. They'd like to get Taiwan's semiconductor manufacturing (laughs) industries uh, as a Chinese semiconductor manufacturing corporation. Uh, They would like to get all of that very, very rich uh, industrial base and just take it over. They don't want to destroy it. They want to take it over.
1: Well, continuing on talking about China, and you mentioned a little bit earlier about President Biden's kind of the perceived thought that his trip to Saudi Arabia was a failure and really didn't bring about any results that he was intending it to do. And then now it looks like uh, China may rush to fill in the gap there as far as influence in the Middle East and that part of the world.
2: Well, I think so. And the Chinese are, are picking up on that. They They already have become the uh, biggest uh, client of Iran for Iran's uh, oil uh, exports. They're also expanding their, their purchases of Russian oil. Uh, And and uh, the Chinese are looking to Saudi Arabia Uh, when the Saudis need some particular military technology that they cannot get elsewhere, such as long range ballistic missiles. They historically have turned to China. And by the way, they've done that since the Reagan administration, uh, when U.S.-Saudi ties were really very, very solid and very strong. In 1986, the Chinese bought long range nuclear capable ballistic missiles that would allow them to hit Iran and any other country in the region for that matter so the the Chinese have things to offer to countries in the region which uh, right now the United States does not we 're not going to sell ballistic missiles to saudi arabia we 're not going to sell uh, probably f35 aircraft uh, we don't offer the same kind of expanded markets instead we want From Saudi Arabia oil, we want from the UAE expanded oil uh, production. And those countries are pretty much at the limit of what they can actually produce. So we don't offer anything Hmm. to most of those countries in the region, whereas the Chinese offer a lot.
1: Very interesting. Like you said, with the cold weather coming along, they do have to prepare. It's going to be an interesting time. Well, we have a short amount of time left, but I wanted to get your thought on two issues. And I'm moving out of the European theater here. And just I want to look at the Middle East. Two things I wanted to get your thoughts on. First, in Iraq right now, it looks like there is some protest in the parliament. And I was wondering if you could explain that situation. And also maybe possible military operations between Turkey and Syria.
2: Yeah. Well, Iraq, first of all, uh, the supporters of Muqtada al-Sadr, who has changed his spots completely. Four or five years ago, we were all looking at him as a pro-Iranian political force inside Iraq. Now he has turned against Iran, where he at one point took refuge uh, because he was being hunted down by the Iraqi state. He's turned against Iran, and he's been portraying himself as an Iraqi nationalist. Well, this past week, Thousands, thousands of his supporters stormed the parliament building. He was showing his raw political power and demonstrating to the pro-Iranian Shiite uh, majority in the parliament now that he is still a force to be reckoned with. And they're going to have a hard time if they want to nominate his uh, political rival backed by Tehran the former prime minister, Nouri al-Maliki, who, by the way, the U.S. supported for many, many years. Now he's seen as a pro-Iranian puppet.
1: And continuing on, what, uh, if you could explain to us, because that's an excellent explanation from Iraq, what's going to take place in Turkey as they look possibly towards military operations in Syria?
2: This one's going to get interesting, Rick, because remember, we had last week that Ezekiel 38 conference in Tehran between the Iranian leader, Putin, and Erdogan. Uh, Now, all, all, all three of them are engaged in Syria, but the Turks are on the other side. Iran and Russia are backing the Syrian government, and Turkey has been backing the Islamist rebels, the Muslim Brotherhood rebels. The remainder of what used to be ISIS and al-Qaeda, Turkey has been backing them. Uh, this past week, you've had the Russians warning Turkey, if you... Uh, launch an operation against the Kurds, Uh, we're going to make it difficult for you. We're going to give you trouble. So I would be cautious about this one. The Turks are warning that they could go in at any time into northern Syria. They are worried about the Kurds. They're saying it's the PKK, so-called terrorists. I happen to not uh, accept that label of the PKK any longer. I think it's uh, now been rejected by the European Union, by courts in Europe, uh, and the PKK is a a national liberation organization. Uh, But the Turks want to go in there and eliminate their Syrian Kurdish allies of the PKK, and the Russians are saying, hold off, watch it, you could get in trouble. I think that's going to um, uh, uh, serve as a check on Erdogan's ambitions.
1: Certainly a lot of players involved in that interaction and something to keep an eye on. Well, the geopolitical scene is very confusing and you act as our tour guide. We appreciate you explaining these confusing issues, and you and you make it so easy for us to understand, so thank you so much, and we'll talk to you again soon. Well, thanks so much, Rick. I,
2: I hope it helps. Uh, it is confusing, but uh, uh, really, when you look at those big players, it is it is the, the one that we've always been looking at. It's, it's Turkey, it's Iran, it's Russia, and it's China.
0: And those are the very nations of Bible prophecy. Well, we'll take a break, and when we come back, our Middle East News update with David
3: Dolan, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Dodd Morris for Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. On Wednesday, protesters stormed the Iraqi parliament in Baghdad. Hundreds pushed into the building, waving flags in support of powerful Shia leader Muqtada al-Sadr. Meanwhile, tensions between Iraq and Turkey remain high. On July 20th, artillery fire killed five Iraqi tourists at a resort in Kurdistan. Samuel with redemptive stories says this region has a Christian community that always seeks to engage their neighbors. Ask God to give them a voice. An Indonesian pastor and nine others died after gunmen attacked a truck on the island of Papua. Ilias Urbea was traveling to a church conference. The West Papua Liberation Army was responsible. Bruce Allen with FMI says most rebels in the army would identify as Christians, even if they don't know what that means. Through FMI, you can support a national church planner for less than $5 a day. Learn more at missionnews.org, a service of One Way Ministries.
4: Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com.
1: Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of God's prophetic word. This is our second segment of the program, and this is the segment that we call the Middle East News Update, and typically Dave Dolan joins us, and he joins us again today. Dave, thank you for joining us.
5: Happy to do it, Rick, and uh, it's hot up here where I'm at, but will be cool. Very nice,
1: very nice. Well, I've got a potpourri of news stories for you to talk about today, all revolving around the Middle East, Israel, and uh, the surrounding Middle Eastern countries. But we'll start with Prime Minister Lapid visiting Jordan's King Abdullah. What can you tell us about that visit?
5: Well, of course, Rick, it's his first visit to Oman uh, in an official capacity because, of course, he's only been acting prime minister for a few weeks. But uh, he made that trip. That's not unusual Uh, since the peace treaty was signed in 1994 between the two countries. uh, Every Israeli prime minister has been to Amman. And uh, King Abdullah, of course, recently was in Ramallah, north of Jerusalem. He didn't visit Jerusalem itself, but the relations are fairly good. And um, they like in Amman, they like Lapid a lot better than Netanyahu, because, of course, He's more centrist and left wing in his politics. And um, they discussed uh, several projects that the two countries are jointly involved in. That has to do with water. Israel is uh, hoping to sell water that it desalinates to Jordan. Right now they give them some fresh water, naturally fresh water as part of the peace deal every year. And uh, they discussed food security between the two countries and Jordan brought up that it would like to export more of its goods into Judea and Samaria, the West Bank, to the Palestinians there. They're already the major supplier of goods and services in that sense to that area, but they want to increase that even more.
1: Well, the relationship between Israel and Jordan, although at times strained, is probably one of the best relationships that uh, Israel has with any of its Arab neighbors. Is that true?
5: It is, and it's precisely because the Hashemite kingdom, regime, leaders are fairly moderate, and they always have been. Uh, History took a turn south, as it were, when the Saud family kicked the Hashemites out of Saudi Arabia, which was then just called Arabia, in, I think it was 1924, and Britain created the kingdom of Jordan, Trans-Jordan it was called, so that the Hashemites had another place to rule. They also had rulers in Iraq next door, so uh, they've always been more moderate. They're not Muslim fundamentalists to any degree, like the uh, Wahhabis in Saudi Arabia that basically have run the show there for decades. The importance, of course, is that Israel shares the longest border uh, with any country, with Jordan. And um, Amman, I lived in just south of the old city of Jerusalem. I could see the lights of Amman at night. Hmm. And some days on a clear day, I could see the buildings, the towers uh, during the day. So they're close neighbors, and uh, let's hope that they continue to uh, move along. Uh, I should have mentioned Abdullah brought up the Palestinian state. He said the two-state solution is the only way to go. We must work towards a Palestinian state. They always make that statement, Rick, but in their hearts what we understand is that they know it would probably, if it were truly independent, be ruled by Hamas, which is a branch of the Muslim Brotherhood, which is working against the Hashemite uh, government in Jordan
1: very interesting dynamics in play there speaking of palestinian authority human rights watch a group that has not necessarily been a friend to israel came out and criticized palestinian leadership both hamas and the palestinian authority for widespread use of
5: torture yes and that came rick just after the uh, or just after that report i should say the un issued a similar report uh, detailing torture of palestinians and it goes on all the time another uh, commission of human rights issued its report and it said that 252 complaints of torture were received just last year alone in judea and samaria now this is palestinians torturing palestinians the palestinian authority uh, doing this uh, are the charges and uh, they said there were nearly 300 other arbitrary arrests as they called them And we know that the PA cracks down really hard on any criticism of its policies from fellow Palestinians. We know that a leading Palestinian human rights activist was murdered by the PA last year. They beat him to death, basically. And the report all noted that other Palestinian human rights activists, well-known ones, I have failed to speak out on this issue. They also said that it's far worse. That's just the statistics from Judea and Samaria, the West Bank. It's far worse if you add in the Gaza Strip, where Hamas, of course, does fully rule. And they are known to be cruel. They're known to sweep people off the street. It's just like the old... Soviet Union people just disappear. Families can't find them, don't know what's going on. And the guys, mostly men, do report various forms of torture. So that's just a reality and something that people need to be aware of.
1: Absolutely. People do need to be aware of that as we talk about Israel and the Palestinians being peace partners, quote unquote. Well, continuing our view of things impacting uh, current events in the Middle East, we have noticed that many Iranian airlines have halted flights to Syria after what they say are alleged Israeli strikes in Syria.
5: Well, they pretty clearly are Israeli strikes. We just had uh, a week ago a second major attack on Damascus Airport by what was said to be Israeli jets. And undoubtedly it was because it was in the south end of the uh, terminals where uh, Hezbollah operates, where Iran has uh, weapons depots, and the Israelis bombed all of that. In fact, some reports say it was the largest Israeli action yet taken in Syria. And as a result, two of Iran's secular airlines, if I could put it that way, not state-controlled, announced they would no longer fly any commercial flights to uh, Syria. But uh, importantly, the uh, Revolutionary Guards linked Manar airline is going to continue to fly into Damascus and Aleppo and other places. That's the one that the U.S. says is carrying weapons to uh, Hezbollah and to uh, Iranian forces uh, stationed in uh, Syria. So uh, that continues. But we also had an interesting report, Rick, this week that uh, the Syrian foreign minister slipped into Tehran unannounced with a request from president assad of syria mm-hmm. that uh, iran curb some of its activities in syria that it uh, reduce its presence on syrian air bases and syrian airports because of course israel striking them so if that's true that shows that maybe that alliance between Syria and Iran is weakening a little bit, and maybe Iran is going to have to pull back a little bit on its very aggressive moves and stands and weapons buildups. I mean, this isn't their country. They were called in to help defeat uh, Assad's enemies. They did that. They're pretty much defeated, and they're still there, still doing all their stuff and preparing for full war with Israel and the Israelis, of course, this war between the wars as they call it, are striking back.
1: Very interesting developments taking place there. Well, finally, uh, a little bit of a lighter story. Archaeologists have found a Second Temple-era mikvah, or ritual Jewish bath, uh, in Jerusalem.
5: Could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, it's quite interesting, Rip, because they're actually putting in an elevator. Uh, you've been there. Now you have to walk uphill to get to the Western Wall, and if you're going up to the Temple Mount, you need to walk up a ramp to do that. So they're putting in an elevator for elderly Jews or whoever, tourists too, who can use it uh, right there. And as they were excavating for that, they found a very wealthy home right along the walls of the old city, of the Temple Mount itself, I should say, and in it was a very elaborate mikvah. That's, of course, a Jewish ritual bath, so it was clearly owned by jews wealthy jews at that time the second temple period they found other things uh, from different eras and including was uh, some christian things they found from about the 6th century some um, greek uh, writing on some pots etc that said the light of christ shines for all and that was a well known phrase in that time that was has been found on other artifacts from that era So it shows that the the Christians may have been living uh, in that uh, area right next to the Western Wall in the Byzantine period. And in fact, we know that they were. So uh, the elevator is still going in, but they. every time you turn over a rock, as you know they say <laughs> that in Israel, you, you discover something historic. So it's a wonderful find. And, of course, another confirmation that Jews were in Jerusalem in the Second Temple period and that there was a temple there, something the Palestinians strongly deny.
1: I was going to bring that up. I'm glad you did bring that up, that uh, there are some with an agenda that say there was no Jewish presence in Jerusalem. We know that's not true. Very interesting story. Archaeology, like you said, you stick a shovel in the ground in Israel, you're going to discover something, especially in the old city of Jerusalem. We look forward to going back there and seeing some of these new things when we resume our tours to Israel. Well, David, thank you so much for coming on and informing our listeners today. We look forward to talking to you again soon.
5: I'm always happy to do it Rick, God bless.
1: We're going to take a break right here on Prophecy Today, but when we come back we'll have Dr. Rob Congdon of Congdon Ministries. Stay tuned right here on Prophecy Today Radio.
4: believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy.
0: Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr. And along with Rick, we've been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, I'm looking forward to this next half hour when we talk to two good friends of ours, Dr. Rob Congdon and R.C. Merle. Dr. Rob Congdon, uh, I, I thought it would be great to have him on to talk to us about a new aspect of Baptist denomination that's coming into being. Rob Congdon joins us today. He's a good friend of our
1: ministry. He's been on the program for many, many years. He is the director of Congdon Ministries at CongdonMinistries.org. You could check out his website there. And Rob, thank you so much for joining us today.
6: It's so good to be with you. I always enjoy being with you and your listeners.
1: Well, Rob, what I'd like to talk about today, and I've noticed a trend coming up, and and, and I go to a Baptist church, and there's a lot of people in the church now, or at least a few people uh, in my church, and in general, a trend here talking about being a Reformed Baptist. And so I thought that it might be a good time for you to address this. So if you could, just kind of give us an overview. When you're talking about maybe the traditional definition of a Baptist versus a Reformed Baptist, could you tell us what the difference is?
6: Well, of course, traditionally a Baptist was its prime emphasis when it really came into being as a group of people, was the idea that uh, they didn't really hold to infant baptism. They believed it was believer's baptism, and it should be by immersion, total immersion. So therefore, the, the groups that split away from many of the Protestant movements uh, said no. You know, we have to immerse our believers in baptism, and so that ended. That was really the major distinction. But with time, the Baptists themselves, uh, as anybody who's been in Baptist churches know, eventually start splitting into different groups uh, over other issues, and eventually a group came out that were called the Reformed Baptist. What they really distinguished them, if you will, from many of the other Baptist groups, was that they believed in a sort of a congregationalist type of church uh, system. In other words, they they went away from the idea of elders and uh, really united groups of fellowships, and they went more into the individual and into the congregational where the people would vote uh... however what they retained is much of calvinistic or reformed theology and now in our day actually i now say to people that uh... uh... if they say they're a baptist to me i say well tell me a little bit of what you hold to and you find very quickly whether they're what your dad used to call and i call myself a biblicist those who take the scriptures literally historically and grammatically as written and uh, versus really a Calvinistic theology that brings into allegorical interpretations of Scripture, emphasizing, of course, eschatology. So there has been this division, and the numbers of people who would be calling themselves Reformed Baptists, uh, in reality, they're pure, straightforward, very—my term is—aggressive Calvinists today. And the distinction between them and those that are. Also, aggressive Calvinists in some of the denominational churches and those in Bible churches. There's almost no difference today for all purposes. They have all moved into that grouping of Calvinism, and I tend to lump them in because the distinguishes, the parts that distinguish them, has become minor.
1: I do love that interpretation of being a Biblicist. I know last week with Mike Gendron, we talked about the one true church, and the one true church basically comes, or not basically, only comes from Scripture. If it's not of Scripture, then it's not the true church. And so that's what we at Prophecy Today, and I know you as well, like to look at. Well, what are the differences? We'll probably end up focusing on eschatology here, but from a theological or even a salvation perspective, what are the differences from a Reformed Calvinistic Baptist?
6: Well, again, the significant difference, and I I point out to people, this is what they need to understand. Back in the 1890s, and that's a term I use, 1890 Calvinist, uh, an 1890 Calvinist and I would go out and we'd share the scriptures. And our goal would be to present the Scriptures of the need to receive Jesus Christ alone as your Savior, not by works that you can do, uh, and that's it. And when a person would receive Christ, uh, 1890s Calvinists would say, well, see, they were elect, and our job was merely to tell them the Scriptures. I would say, well, our job was to present the scriptures and let them make the choice on their own to receive Christ or reject Him. So there was kind of a, a difference on, in theory of how salvation worked, but in actual practice, there was no difference. Today, there's a significant difference. The aggressive Calvinist who understands Calvinism doesn't believe he needs to proclaim the scriptures. You are either elect or not elect to salvation, and therefore uh, they don't need to go out in what we would call evangelism. And that's a significant difference, because now it's not theory. It's on the street, foot on the ground, salvation, presentation, versus none. And then you have people in between that sort of are confused and don't know what to do. But let's face it, human nature is comfortable and Mm. not... Mm -hmm beating people face-to-face, and confronting them with their need for salvation. So obviously it emotionally appeals to many people, Calvinism does. So today the difference has faded. It's become significant today, where in 1890s, like I said, it was theory, but practice was the same.
1: Well, if we move on from that to eschatology, and we were talking a little bit before this, and you talked about your eschatology basically is driving your uh, theology here,
3: isn't it?
6: Well, I think it significantly does. I I remember John Whitcomb, Dr. John Whitcomb used to say, if you get Genesis right and Revelation right, the rest of the Bible will fit together beautifully, Hmm. and he's right. Hmm. Sadly, when Calvin came along, he had a different view about prophecy. His view of prophecy was that, uh, or, or a prophet, let's say a prophet, first of all, is the prophet's job was merely to interpret Scripture and to have special wisdom and aptitude for recognizing the problems and needs of the churches today, and that their job was not to predict future events. So his whole view of prophecy was, read the scriptures, and they've got to apply today into the churches, and we're going to deal with them on that end, but avoid talking about the future. And so, consequently, eschatology uh, is not often taught in strong Calvinistic churches. But, but the reality is, if you look at our eschatology and the events we're talking about in the latter days, you'll find that they actually support and prove the Biblicist position and show that Calvin's five points are quite weak in terms of understanding a scripture. In fact, they're really philosophy rather than scriptural.
1: I love what you say there, that the great Dr. John Wickham said, if you get Genesis and Revelation right, the rest of it falls into place. Again, I know I have a few Calvinistic friends, and and I know they say, their thoughts are, well, Revelation doesn't fit neatly into my box, so it's not something that we can understand, even though it's part of Scripture. Well, that's a very dangerous world view, isn't it?
6: Oh, absolutely. You know, all Scripture is profitable. Mm. Or teaching, etc. And it is. And I, th- I think of a a good, relatively short illustration of something that happened in my life. Um, way back when we were serving in Britain, on a Sunday we were to go visit a church and to meet some people there. And interesting, three different churches met in one building. Well, you can guess, we walked into the wrong church service. We weren't in the right one. And it was right after major tragedies and terrorism in in the world around us. Everybody was ill at ease, and people wanted to have answers to why these things are happening and the minister, that tells you it was a Calvinistic church, he gets up and he reads this verse. He reads in Daniel chapter 12, verse 9, Go thy way, Daniel, for the words are closed up, sealed till the end of time. And he said, I have no answers for what are happening today, because it's all sealed up, and we'll find out someday. Mm. And that's a typical Calvinist approach to eschatology. Sadly, that doesn't give any answers for life and for the the world or for God's plan of history and his purposes. And it leaves people with no direction at all.
1: Well, one of the focuses, and I know you know this, on our ministry here at Prophecy Today, I mean, one-third of the Bible is prophetic in nature. And so as we look at that... We realize it, we, we see prophecies that were fulfilled from the Old Testament. They were fulfilled with the coming of Christ. We see prophecies that are for the end times. Those are there to motivate us. Those are there to drive us. And if you get rid of those, it definitely does change the way you're going to look at the world. We're, I have one more question. What, what do you think about people who say that uh, the premillennial pre-trib view, which we talk about here on Prophecy Today, and I know you subscribe to as well, well, what do you say to people who say that's kind of a Johnny-come-lately theology or that's something that was only maybe within the last 100 to 150 years?
6: Well, it's interesting. That's one of the things they like to bring up that, uh, you know, the Schofield Bible and other dispensational views are relatively modern in terms and not as old as Calvinism. Well, if you do some careful study of the scriptures and you look carefully at the book of Acts, for instance, which over and over it says it's talking that they were preaching uh, salvation or resurrection and the kingdom of god Hmm. and so the kingdom of god is a crucial issue and in the early days of the church there are documents showing us this they were taking a view that closely aligned with what we call dispensational today but they just didn't title it that that's a modern title if you will but not a modern teaching and, and I, I, I can't stress enough how crucial it is to understand things. Uh, if I might, I'd like to really give one practical aspect of the difference between Calvinism's eschatology and a pre-mill, pre-trib, dispensational eschatology and, and how serious sure. it is to the individual believer and how his outlook is on his future life here right now. One of the key points of Calvinism is called perseverance of the saints, and everybody makes it their own interpretation. The simple explanation has always been for me growing up was that once you are saved, you will always be saved. God will, You know, you're not going to turn away if you're a true believer. Well, if we look at Calvinism, and we look at what's called the Great White Throne Judgment of Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, now that's a very final event before the new heavens and earth. They stress the Great White Throne Judgment is a time where every human being will have to face God and give proof, proof of what they did to show they were either the elect or not the elect, In other words, they've got to get like in a courtroom and prove that they're the elect to God himself. So the Calvinists would say, you better keep doing your works to prove that you're elect. Hmm. Well, that's basically salvation by works in Hmm. reality. I would say the Scripture says, by faith alone I accept Jesus Christ, that his worth, work paid for my salvation by mm. the shedding of his blood. Now, here's the key. When we get into Jude, we find out it tells us that God preserves us. In other words, like the little child walking down the street learning to walk, God's hand hangs on to him even when their feet go out from under them. In my case, or a Biblicist's case, we know that God's going to keep us in our salvation with him. It isn't our effort. Well, that affects everything you do. And so it's very important to see that that's how that affects it. In uh, the Calvinists, they rarely touch on eschatology, but the great white throne judgment is a major teaching. And also they stress in Revelation 12 that what you read about Revelation 12 is not Israel, it's the church, and therefore they throw out all of the tribulation, the millennium. They throw that out because obviously that has to do with Israel, and the Church is now Israel, and there is no nation of Israel anymore. That again has a major practical application in our world today, and in our treatment and our outreach to Jewish people.
1: Absolutely, and I know I said that was the last question, but you brought that up, and that's very fair. We talk a lot about Israel and what's taking place in Israel, and we talk about what we saw in 1948 was essentially fulfilled Bible prophecy, and uh, that does, again, that does not fit neatly into a box for the Reformed group. And so, of course, when your theology does not agree with Scripture, you need to relook at your theology, do you not?
6: Oh, absolutely, And, and I think that's crucial. Um, when I come in my normal reading through my scriptures, I come to Daniel again, I approach and I say, Lord, let Daniel speak to me. Let the book of Revelation speak to me as you wrote it, not what I want to make it say. And uh, I thank the Lord because each time I reread it, I learn new things about what our Lord's doing, but it never changes the things I've learned before. Because I take the scriptures as God wrote them, not as I want them to make them or become my philosophical view and never forget calvinism's basis goes back to augustine and the the uh, philosophy of the day and so consequently it, it isn't pure scripture concepts it's philosophy and scripture where i believe in scripture is alone to dictate what i understand of god and my
1: lord rob excellent conversation and excellent information for our listeners if you could, before you go, could you just let us know a little bit about your ministry and how people could learn more?
6: Oh, sure. Our ministry, interesting, just in the news today, they talked about the vast number of people now going to the Internet for Bible teaching. And that was very encouraging because our ministry is primarily through the Internet. We do do some Bible conferences. But the Internet, we are teaching the Scriptures to people in depth At a level they can understand it, but it's still in-depth, and we are stressing prophecy in our ministry on our Internet site. You can find book uh, teachings and videos on prophecy, but also on Calvinism and why it is not biblical. So it's an Internet outreach, and we go to 31 countries of the world. We have viewers and listeners in 31 countries of the world. Just do a search on Google for CongdonMinistries.org, and you can get to it.
1: Thank you so much, Rob. We look
0: forward to talking to you again soon.
6: I do, too. And the Lord bless you and keep you until he comes.
0: Amen. Rob Congdon always gives us information that we need to know, really, uh, pertaining to the body of Christ. And that's why we have guys like Dr. Rob Congdon, Mike Gendron, all those gentlemen that are on uh, as we address situations. And I hope that you enjoy being informed, as I do, as to what we're dealing with in our churches today. It just seems like always there's something new coming up within the body of Christ and just an indication that we are in the last days. Well, this week I have R.C. Murrow on the line with me. R.C., welcome back to the program.
7: Good to be with you, Jimmy. Yes, Thanks sir.
0: You know, um, R.C., I have been watching the news as everyone else and the conditions in America. Of course, I'm still in Europe, and we're going to talk a little bit about Europe in just a moment. But I wanted to ask you, because so many times I'm confused, <laughs> are we in a recession in the United States, or aren't we in a recession? What would you say as a financial analyst? Yeah, I would say we are in a
7: recession, Jimmy. For the past several decades, we've all used the metrics that if you have two quarters of uh, business quarters in a row in negative uh, growth that that is the definition of a recession and we just had that but it's typical of government officials whenever they get news they don't like they can sometimes try to redefine things like what happened about 40 years ago the, the consumer price index was was de- redefined and, and then they excluded food and energy which is something everyone uses every day from the consumer price index. So what we have here now is it appears that a government is trying to say well that's not what inflation is and we have a different definition. So we're just you know just changing the scoreboard after the game already started.
0: Mm. And how would that affect us as believers? I mean what should we what should be our thought process during a time of recession? Cuz obviously this is not the first time we've been uh, the United States of America has been in a, uh, a recession.
7: Yeah, I think the fear of recession is because we had so many new events taking place, like COVID-19, which, mm. which put the brakes on the economy for almost two years. And we have supply chain issues that we probably never had before. We have so many different dynamics going on that, that it's hard to go. It's hard to really relate this to, to the last recession of 2008 and nine. That was a se- so severe that it almost caused the country to go into depression. Actually, that could happen here, too, if things don't start to straighten out and settle down as far as the Federal Reserve raising interest rates.
0: Well, we certainly know that our Father watches over us. He provides for us even in times of recession. We know that we can't outgive God. I've always encouraged people to do that. And, and, and believe me, this is not a pitch for any type of donation for funds. This is just about, as believers, We should not be worrying about who holds the future for us because we know it is the Lord that does that, correct?
7: I agree with you completely, Jimmy.
0: Yeah. Well, on Thursday, you sent me an article, and since I'm here in the Europe, not necessarily the European Union, but I am in Eastern Europe. I'm in a country that is slowly digging itself out of socialism and uh, starting to uh, come up to the 21st century, I guess, if you will, uh, as far as world economics. But on Thursday, you sent me an article about what looks like the destruction of the Italian economy that was overseen by Italy's now ex-Prime Minister, Mario Draghi. What can you tell us about it?
7: Yeah, Jimmy, uh, Mario Draghi was once the governor of the Bank of Italy. He was chairman of the European Central Bank mm. and became prime minister of Italy in February 2021 with great fanfare from every part of the Italian government, including two populist parties, the Five Star Movement and one called the League. In fact, one powerful governor of the Campina region, Vincenzo di Luca, Compared Draghi to Christ himself. Hmm. By the way, Jimmy, Draghi is an Italian surname for the plural Drago, which means dragon.
0: So what has happened in Italy in the short space of just 17 months that is so severe that the European Commission forecasted that Italy will experience the slowest economic growth in the EU block of countries?
7: Italy has seen a decline in consumer spending and sharply lower business investment, all compounded by disruption of the supply of natural gas. But that was really the proverbial tip of the iceberg. To begin with, in in Draghi's Italy, real wages fell at the highest rate in the EU, as almost 100,000 small and medium businesses are at risk of insolvency. Mm. Neoliberal wage compression, policies that destroyed worker morale, when, when there's little difference between the pay of employees, regardless of their differences in knowledge, skills, and experience or abilities. Draghi supported the EU's next generation policies that increases Brussels' authoritarian control over the bloc. He pushed for tough EU sanctions against Moscow that are crippling the Europe Europe's economies while leaving Russia unscathed. And lastly, Jimmy. Italy has the fastest-growing inflation rate in Europe that grew fourfold under Draghi's watch, while 5.6 million Italians, or almost 10% of the population, currently live in absolute poverty, proving the old adage that in socialism, you run out of other people's money.
0: Wow. You know, uh, R.C., I, I see similarities uh, where we are as America and what Draghi was trying to implement in Italy in the last couple of years, Correct.
7: Yeah, they, they practically rhyme, don't they?
0: <laughs> we're, uh, were Draghi's policies impacted by the war in Ukraine?
7: Yeah, they, they really were. And uh, Super Mario, as he has been called, mm. bragged about bold measures to wean the country off Russian natural gas, resulting in Italy now paying the highest electricity prices in the EU.
8: Uh,
0: R.C., could Italy's economic uh, woes be the model for a future takeover by an authoritarian government as foretold in bible prophecy
7: yeah jimmy to quote for former eu council president jean-claude juncker it would be better if the eu had one president to steer the ship and jimmy as you and i both know one is coming mm. in revelation 6 1 and 2 daniel nine twenty six says he will come from the revived roman empire revelation thirteen four says he will be indwelt by satan Revelation 13:11 says he will have a second in command, and I'll quote from there. It says, then I saw another beast coming out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And it's possible that the second in command resides in Rome today. As you well know, Rome was the seat of Constantine, the Roman emperor, who in 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea held a weakening empire together by uniting Rome with Christianity. While Constantine refused to fully embrace the Christian faith, emerged many pagan beliefs and practices, and appointed himself Pontifus Maximus, giving rise to the office of the Bishop of Rome. Mm. Jimmy Rome, not coincidentally, is the seat of the Vatican, the world's largest Christian denomination, the home of the Bishop of Rome, and the likely future residence of a powerful religious leader that will be probably neither Catholic nor Protestant, but leader of a new state religion. Revelation 13:11 calls him the false prophet, now, if, or I should say, when Italy and the rest of the southern EU countries, as prophesied by Daniel 2.33, as feet of partly of iron and partly of clay that did not adhere, cause a complete economic breakdown of the EU, it will be revived Rome that will bring an antichrist.
0: Mm, wow. We're, we're right here at that moment where we're seeing, and we've talked about this before, uh, I think continually as the Lord continues to hold off the rapture of the church, we see uh, parts and pieces being moved on to the stage. We see props. We see actors that come on the stage and go off the stage. Right now, as we're looking at the events that are going to take place, as we look at Bible prophecy, we do know that the revived Roman Empire will come back into being. We know that a one-world leader will take control. He'll uh, come out of that uh, revive Roman Empire. That's Daniel. So we see all of this. Uh, Revelation chapter seventeen, talking about the one world church and the uh, the organization of the false prophet, and then of course in Revelation chapter uh, nineteen, we see Jesus Christ coming back to the earth. But before all of that, seven years before, we see the rapture of the church, and at this moment, we do know that uh, the stage is being set for prophecy to unfold. Correct. It
7: is, Jimmy. It really is. As One of my favorite pastors uh, says all the time that uh, prophetic events cast a shadow backward, and we're seeing the, the beginnings of these things happening all around us today.
0: Wow, wow. It's so very important to understand the timeline of Bible prophecy. Understanding Bible prophecy helps us to understand the urgency of the hour, how we should live as we are looking forward to events unfolding beginning with the rapture of the church, and then, in a matter of time, that tribulation period that will start with the confirmation of a peace agreement between Israel and that one world leader, the Antichrist, uh, as he uh, comes on the scene, takes control both economically, uh, spiritually, uh, and uh, as a government. He will bring in a systematic thought process to help people uh, during that tribulation period to want to, More or less deny God, curse God, and all that they do. Well, um, R.C. Merle, thank you so much. ProphecyTracker.org is his website. Uh, Thank you for bringing this to our attention as we are watching. I do think that we need to keep our eyes on the European Union. What is taking place because the European Union today is the infrastructure of that revived Roman Empire in the future. R.C., thank you so very much for joining with us today. And uh, I know a lot of our people are praying for little Emma. And I know that you and your wife have moved and uh, you're helping uh, take care of little Emma. Please give us an update on little Emma.
7: Yeah, we are at her uh, the home of my youngest son and his family, uh, where Emma resides, and uh, we are here to help to care for her. She has some uh, some pretty difficult uh, disabilities, um, yeah. and, and is only a year and a half old, Jimmy. So she needs a lot of care that we're we're trying to help uh, help our son and his wife to provide. So uh, we appreciate any prayers for our little Emma.
0: We'll continue to pray for Emma and R. C. Merle and his family, uh, extended family, and uh, what they're going through. Thank you, R.C. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Jimmy. Well, we've got to take a break, and when we come back, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series and Signs for the End Times, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr. And along with Rick, we have been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, I really enjoyed your conversation with Dr. Rob Congdon. I think uh, it's something that you have kept your pulse on, and it was a personal conversation that you had with him about things that you're experiencing in your church, and that was so very important. That's right, Jimmy. Sometimes we can get wrapped up in our denomination and what's going on in our church,
1: and we forget that, as Dr. Condon reminded us, and as our dad used to say, we are biblicists. We study the Bible. That's where we find the basis for our salvation, and that's where uh, we find the justification for how we live and uh, and how we study.
0: Yes. You know, if folks want to go to our website, prophecytoday.com, we have many resources there that will help you along in your study of Bible prophecy I like what you said, one-third of God's Word pertains to future events. If it was that important to God, how much more important should it be to us as we study His Word? Well, today on our Legacy series, Rick, and it's something that uh, so many people really enjoy, uh, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung will be covering some of the events that Uh, really lay out the timeline for Bible prophecy. We've talked about it a couple of times on this program, the events of Bible prophecy and how it's going to unfold. Really understanding that helps us to understand uh, where we are on the timeline of God's prophetic timeline for the future. So if you take your Bible's turn to Revelation chapter 1 verse 1, we're going to begin our study this week with Dr. Jimmy D. Young and the Legacy Series
8: all the prophetic passages culminate. Every theme that you see in prophecy, any place in the word of God, culminates with the book of Revelation. It brings us to the end of this world and then the entrance into eternity future. And so Revelation is a must study. And don't be afraid of it. Don't be afraid of going in and looking at the book. Let me give you a couple of hints as you start to look at the book. And then we'll look at a couple of points inside the book of Revelation. First of all, the title of the book is found in chapter 1 and verse 1. I don't know what the title in the particular translation you have. I have a King James translation, and the title of the book says, The Revelation of Saint John the Divine, which is not the title of the book. Revelation is not Revelation of Saint John, and he was not divine. He was a saint because he came to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, uh, but he was not divine. He was not a god. And he was just the author of the book because he got that information from an angel. Chapter 1, verse 1 gives the title of the book, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. That is the title of the book. The book of Revelation lifts up Jesus Christ. Chapter 19 and verse 10, Jesus Christ is the spirit of all prophecy. Jesus Christ. So this book lifts up jesus christ and we need to continually understand that is the case it's lifting up jesus christ i have a sign here on the pulpit right in front of me from john chapter 12 and verse 21 it says we would see jesus very important exhortation for all of us who stand behind this sacred desk. But the book of Revelation helps us to see Jesus revealed in his person, in his power, and in his program that he is laying out. The title of the book, The Revelation of Jesus Christ, by the way, verse 1 tells us where it came from, from God the Father who gave it to Jesus Christ, who gave it to him, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he, Jesus Christ, sent and signified it by his angel, unto his servant John the most used word in the book of Revelation is angel are angels it's plural and they play a key role in the second coming of christ as they did in the first coming of jesus christ as well in chapter one we see that jesus christ who had a great testimony his testimony of coming to know christ as lord and savior he was known as the beloved disciple he at this time in his life was probably in his early 90s having been born Uh, soon after the birth of jesus christ they were contemporaries jesus born in 4 bc uh, before herod died and then we see that indeed john probably came along maybe within 10 years so he would have been somewhat uh about the same age of christ maybe 10 years younger even at that he would probably be in his between 85 and 95 years of age when he wrote the book and he's a pastor of a church in ephesus Ephesus, one of the seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3. Paul started the church, Acts chapter 19. John comes along and plays a key role because so much is now being put in place to advance the cause of Christ and the launch pad. It had started, of course, in Jerusalem, but it then moved to Asia Minor, where these seven churches were located. And these seven churches were being effective as they spread across the world. John was a very effective preacher, a very effective testimony for Jesus Christ. And because of that, Domitian, who was the emperor at the time, 95 AD, would put John on an island in the, uh, off the coast of uh, what we know modern-day Turkey in the Aegean Sea, about 45 miles off the coast, and put him there on this little uh, three-mile-wide, six-mile-long island uh, to be under house arrest. Interestingly, Domitian was uh, the brother of the one who had destroyed the temple in 70 AD. General Titus and Domitian themselves were both sons, of the emperor at the time of the destruction of the temple, Vespasian, who had moved into position as emperor of Rome after the city had been burned down, and he was trying to bring it back. Titus then followed his father as the emperor, and then when he died, Domitian took over. And Domitian really hated Christians, and because of the testimony of John, he put him on this island, imprisoning him. At that point in time, John would receive from the lord what he wanted him to write down it's interesting as you see him on the island there all of a sudden he heard a voice behind him and he turned to see what it was look at verse 12 i want to introduce a very important thought about uh, what happens in revelation verse 12 and i turned to see the voice that spake with me and being turned i saw seven golden candlesticks Now, that's the phrase that John wrote down for us, and it probably sometimes is difficult to understand. It's an apocalyptic phrase. Apocalyptic comes from that Greek word apocalypsis, which means to reveal, to foretell, to make known, uh, to prophesy. Apocalyptic literature is found in four books of the Bible, Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah, and Revelation. And what happens in these portions of these four books, in this apocalyptic literature, is the Lord will use a symbol to communicate an absolute truth. He will use a symbol, it's a literal symbol, to communicate a literal truth. Now notice with me, let me illustrate. Verse 12 again, And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned I saw seven golden candlesticks look at verse 16 and he had in his right hand seven stars let me just stop there there's much more i could deal with but let me just use those two those are two apocalyptic uh, portions of this first chapter of revelation If you're going to understand Revelation, you have to approach it knowing there's going to be apocalyptic literature there. There's a phrase that will help you recognize apocalyptic literature, used 52 times in the book. It is this, as it were, you'll see that phrase 52 times, as it were, we'll see it in just a moment in chapter four, as it were, that means it seems to be, but not really is. In other words, a symbol is communicating something we got to determine or interpret the symbol. Okay, in verse 12, there's seven golden candlesticks. In verse 16, there's seven stars in the right hand of the one he sees. Look at verse 20. The rule for interpreting apocalyptic literature is keep reading the Word of God. Look at verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars, which I saw in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks, which I saw, us are the seven churches. And so that is interpreting what John saw. He saw the seven churches. He saw the angels. And that word is angelos in Greek. It is not talking about apocalyptic. Pastor. Sometimes Angelos is translated messenger, but most of the time it's angels. So this is dealing with what John saw the apocalyptic phrases that we have to recognize as we go through the book of Revelation. The person of Christ is presented here. Chapter 1 would be a great chapter for you to study if you want to know what the resurrected, glorified, soon-coming Christ looks like. But look at verse 18, because after the person we see his power and his testimony of that power. Verse 18... I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And I had the keys of hell and of death. That's the testimony of Christ. That is the cornerstone of our faith. That is the foundation for Bible prophecy. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He had to resurrect. And if he did not resurrect, 1 Corinthians 15 says, we're still living in our sin. He did resurrect. He is alive, testimony by 500 people at least who saw him after his resurrection 1st Corinthians chapter 15 verses 1 to 5 all of these individuals every single one of the disciples except for Judas Every single one of those disciples who saw him in his resurrected body went forth and gave testimony and never recanted on the fact that Christ resurrected from the dead. So again, this is the cornerstone and the foundation for our faith. Now look at verse 19. After we see the authenticity of the person of Christ, we see his authority to be able to tell us exactly what is going to happen in the future. He says, Write down the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. He lays down chapter 1, the things thou hast seen, chapters 2 and 3, the things which are, and everything after that, chapters 4 through 22, all of those things are going to happen hereafter. In chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, we see the letters to the seven churches. And if you want to have a personal revival within your own being study chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. It's just fantastic, those messages. The last word of Jesus Christ to the church. Now come to chapter 4, and I want to show you that there are three main events throughout the entire book of Revelation. Three main events, and if you will focus in on these and what happens in between these events, you can come to an understanding of how the end times will unfold. And this will give you a grid. I want you to develop a grid within your mind to understand what's going to happen chapter four and look at verse one and after this now that's not too difficult to understand after this after what At chapter after chapters one two and three After this, chapter 1, the person of Christ. Chapter 2, we see the letters to the seven churches. Again, those churches were alive and active in Asia Minor at the time John wrote the book. But they also represent periods of church history. Down through the last 2,000 years, you don't need to look for a line in the sand. This is the end of the church at Ephesus, the beginning of the church of Smyrna, the end of the church of Smyrna, the beginning of the church of Pergamos. But they are characteristics that are applicable to the different periods of church history and so what he's saying is after church history after the church is ready and is set to go into the heavenlies we see depicted here in chapter 4 verse 1 the rapture of the church and let me illustrate it verse 1 chapter 4 after this I looked and behold a door was opened in heaven and I heard here's that phrase as it were a trumpet talking with me which said come up Hither, and I will show thee the things which must be hereafter. This is depicting the rapture of the church. Notice it says, I heard as it were a trumpet talking with me. But I got to tell you something. I started playing trumpet when I was 14 years of age. I do have a box right of ears, a handmade trumpet. But that trumpet never talked to me. <laughs> never did a trumpet talk to me. That's what it's saying here. I heard as it were a trumpet Talking with me. There's that apocalyptic literature. You remember what it says in First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18? Jesus will shout, the archangel will shout, the trump of God will sound, and we'll be caught up to be with him in the air. First Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 to 53, in the moment in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. You see, you use other biblical literature to interpret the apocalyptic phrase. So we see here in chapter 4, verse 1, John, in chapter 4, verse 1, he's on earth. Chapter 4, verse 2, he's in the throne room in the third heaven before the throne of God. He's translated into the heavenlies. Using the principles of hermeneutics, the science of interpreting Scripture, We see that Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1 depicts the truth found in the Bible about the rapture of the church. That event, the rapture, can happen at any moment, even today. By the way, should the rapture not happen this week, please join us next week as we continue our study on when will the end of the world happen. We'll answer that question with the Word of God especially the book of Revelation. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. You know, if you'd like to purchase
0: any of the Legacy Series that you have heard on the radio program, that is available at our website, prophecytoday.com. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll take a look at the book right here on Prophecy Today Weekend.
3: I'm Dodd Morris for Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. On Wednesday, protesters stormed the Iraqi parliament in Baghdad. Hundreds pushed into the building, waving flags in support of powerful Shia leader Muqtada al-Sadr. Meanwhile, tensions between Iraq and Turkey remain high. On July 20th, artillery fire killed five Iraqi tourists at a resort in Kurdistan. Samuel with redemptive stories says this region has a Christian community that always seeks to engage their neighbors. Ask God to give them a voice. An Indonesian pastor and nine others died after gunmen attacked a truck on the island of Papua. Ilias Urbea was traveling to a church conference. The West Papua Liberation Army was responsible. Bruce Allen with FMI says most rebels in the army would identify as Christians, even if they don't know what that means. Through FMI, you can support a national church planner for less than $5 a day. Learn more at missionnews.org, a service of One Way Ministries.
4: Just how close are we to the rapture of the church? Do events taking place in the Middle East and around the world have prophetic significance? In his latest book, Sound the Trumpets, Jimmy DeYoung examines these questions and explains just how near the rapture of the church could possibly be. By comparing four trends from prophetic scripture to current events taking place in the world today, Jimmy shows that the stage is set. Every actor is in place, and the curtain is about to go up on the end-time scenario set forth in the Scriptures. Sound the Trumpets is a must-read for every serious student of Bible prophecy. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's new book, Sound the Trumpets, for only fifteen dollars, call us today at eight prophecy eight. That's eight seven seven six seven four three two nine eight. Or visit us on the World Wide Web at prophecytoday.com. Call today and make sure to get your copy of Sound the Trumpets. <music>
0: Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr., and along with Rick, we have been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, a great program today as we were looking at events and how they pertain to God's prophetic word and that timeline, the rapture, the three main events, the rapture, the return of Jesus Christ, and then the great white throne judgment in the future with a seven-year period of time in between the rapture and the return of Jesus Christ, which is called the tribulation, and then the millennial period in the future. Today, we seem to focus only on the events that are leading us up to the rapture of the church. Well, I'm so glad you laid that out for us, Jimmy. And, you know, we were talking to Ken Timmerman
1: earlier today, and he was talking about the Ezekiel 38 conference that took place last week. And again, those same players are in the news, those people from Ezekiel 38. But as you just laid out the timeline... The reason we're focusing on that is because this is going to take place after the rapture of the church.
0: You know, every prophecy is, as far as I'm concerned, as you're concerned, as as far as what we teach, all prophecies, the 500 remaining prophecies are going to take place after the rapture of the church. There's no prophecy Mm -hmm. to be fulfilled before the rapture takes place. We believe that the rapture is an imminent event that could happen at any moment. As John said in 1 John chapter 3, this is the hope that purifies us. Knowing that the rapture could happen any moment helps us to live a pure, productive, holy life. But when we focus on those events, especially what's taking place with nations that are mentioned in Bible prophecy, Ezekiel 38, China, when you talk about the kings out of the East, China and India coming uh, and how they're growing and what they are doing, the decisions that they're making, it shows us that the actors are in place and the prophecies are about ready to be fulfilled. The only thing that needs to happen is that rapture of the church needs to take place. Dave Dolan,
1: during the Middle East News update, we kind of led off that hour talking about the current prime minister, Prime Minister Lapid, visiting King Abdullah in Jordan. And I know, Jimmy, that you were at the peace treaty signing um, in the 90s. One of the reason we look at those peace treaties is because Daniel talks about a peace treaty that's going to be on the table but not really working. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, that's uh, so very important. Dad and I were at that, uh, the, the Arava peace uh, signing between Israel and Jordan, the first time that there had been signed and declared peace. But those men, God used world leaders to accomplish his will. And the signing of that peace agreement, which we believe would be one of the three that are on the table, that the Antichrist, um, that when he comes on the scene, the Antichrist confirms a peace agreement with Israel for a seven-year period of time. It could be the Camp David Accord. It could be the Oslo Accord. Or it could be the uh, peace agreement that was signed with Jordan. And that was so very important. And now to see the current prime minister, although he is temporary until the next elections, but he is making a move and getting together with the current king of Jordan, King Abdullah, and he's making a decision. And uh, an agreement to work together. We see this, and we also see in Daniel chapter 11 that the Antichrist passes over a country of Ammon, Edom, and Moab. That would be the modern-day country of Jordan. I believe that Jordan is that place where the Jews flee to for the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. They'll go to that city of Petra, that 25-square-mile protected rock fortress city, and I think in the future, this is that place that uh, in Matthew chapter 24 where it talks about when you see um, the tribulation period come and the great tribulation flee to the mountains for protection and that's the area where the Jewish people will go to to be protected by God from the Antichrist.
1: So interesting Jimmy as we look at these current events and then we look at scripture and we kind of mesh them together Mm -hmm. and we see what's taking place. Uh, Talking with Rob Congdon he's so great and One of the things he said, and it's similar to what last week we talked with Mike Gendron about, and he's talking about getting the gospel right, making sure that we are looking at Scripture correctly. And then Rob today talked about if you can get the book of Genesis and Revelation correct or right, then the rest of the book falls into place. And when we talk about getting it right, we're talking about rightly dividing Scripture, making sure that it all works together. And that's so important as you look at Scripture and as as we as Christians study the Word as we're supposed to, we have to get
0: these things right. You know, the last couple of months, really, uh, on our legacy series, uh, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung has been teaching the Alpha and the Omega. The Genesis and the end, the book of Revelation. This week we touched on the timeline for the future events of Revelation, beginning in Revelation chapter 1. Well, we've been looking at the Alpha, which would be the beginning, the beginning of Bible prophecy with the first prophecy in the Bible in Genesis chapter 3. And now this week we're looking at the end, and I think it's so good. I love what he said about Dr. Wickham. If you get Genesis and Revelation right, you'll get everything else in between just fine.
1: And then, of course, R.C. Moro, always so well prepared and always such a wealth of information.
0: Yes. You know, we focus on this. And some people might say, well, why are you focusing on the prime minister of Italy, the ex-prime minister, and decisions that he made? Well, again, God uses world leaders to accomplish his will. That sets the scene for the Antichrist, who will be and use an economic system uh, to come into place to uh, really to allow to, to rescue the nations of the European Union or the revived Roman Empire to help them to uh, buy and sell and certainly we are seeing that in the world right now not only in Europe but in America worldwide we 're seeing situation where the scene is set just perfect for a one world leader to come on the scene talking about peace and economic system being put in place. And I think that we are quickly moving towards uh, the season for that to be ripe at this very moment. Well, Jimmy, all these things are to motivate us. They're motivate us to get out and live pure, but
1: also be productive. And that's what you're doing right now. You're in Montenegro. You're sharing the gospel to
0: those that need to hear it. You and I both have that desire To not only to understand and to study God's word, but to realize what it's here for. And it's to show us the urgency of the hour that God could have used the stars in the heaven to spell out you must be born again. But instead he chose us to carry forth that message of redemption, which is believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross, went to the grave and rose again. Rick, thanks so much for the program this week. Thanks for doing a great job on talking to our geopolitical uh, broadcast partners, helping us to understand what's happening in the world so that we can know where we are on God's timeline. I'll see you again next week, Rick. And um, should the Lord tarry, we'll be here next week. And we'll keep looking up until...